So, if you were to read secular history, read a secular historian, what they say about the rise of Christianity in the beginning, what they say is very interesting. One historian, Karen Armstrong, in her book, Fields of Blood, here's what she says. She says, against all odds, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We really do not understand how this came about. This is the modern historian say, we look back and we don't understand, even to this day, how it came about. Especially when you consider the incredible persecution that Christians underwent under the first 300 years. There is this a Christian apologist or theologian who lived in the early 3rd century. His name was Tertullian. And he wrote sort of tongue-in-cheek, he said this, He said, if the Tiber, which is a river, he said, if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lions. That was what was going on in the world back then. His point was in the Roman Empire that anytime something went bad, oh, blame the Christians. It's their fault. And so Christians were brutalized and they were tortured and they were killed. You know that, uh, you know, Nero, they blame Christians for the fire that happened in Rome. And uh, Nero would take Christians and put them on stakes and light, light them on fire so that they could light the way uh, down the roads. Emperor Trajan said that any time a Christian was brought before a court of law, for whatever the reason, if they refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods, Trajan said they should be executed. I just want you to think what that must have been like as a Christian back then. That you would do everything possible to ever going to court. Because you knew you would be found yourself in a situation, whatever it is, you're like, okay, they're going to call me on this, and I'm not going to you know, sacrifice to these gods, and then boom, you could just be executed. In other words, when it came to Christianity, every honest historian said we can't imagine How in the world Christianity not only became a force to be reckoned with, which is amazing, but that it even survived the first three centuries. Now, fortunately for you and I, we are giving, you know, remarkable, incredible insight into what happened after Jesus rose from the dead by people who were there. And they tell us how, they tell us why the church became a force to be reckoned with. So to introduce this series, which is what we're doing today, I want to set up the context that will help explain this series that we're calling Not-O-Matic. So let's kick it off this way. Jesus, let's kind of jump ahead a little bit through the life of Jesus, get to the end of Jesus' life. He rises from the dead. How many people saw it coming? How many people saw that coming? Nobody, right? Nobody saw that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. It was a total surprise, but he rose from the dead. So then his disciples, his followers, they head out into the streets of Jerusalem. They say, hey, I know I was a coward before. I mean, at the very last minute, we ran, we ditched Jesus, we bailed on Jesus. And and I was a coward before, but now I have seen and spoken to a risen Messiah, a risen Savior. You can do whatever you want to me now. I don't care because I've seen this risen Savior. And so thousands of people within walking distance of, of Jerusalem, they, began, uh, they just began to embrace Jesus as their Savior. 
in that time, something fascinating happens. There's this group of Jewish, you know, thinkers, theologians, uh, religious leaders, and they're like, oh my goodness, we missed it. We should, have been, we should have seen it coming. I mean, we've been waiting for the Messiah, and somehow we totally missed it. In fact, we even killed the Messiah. So they dove back into their testament, what you and I call the Old Testament, and they're looking for Jesus. And once they actually look, knowing that this person, Jesus, rose from the dead, all of a sudden they begin to see in the Scriptures, oh my goodness, Jesus is all over the place. And they see where the Messiah was supposed to be born, and Jesus was born there, you know, in Bethlehem. And, and they see that the Messiah was actually going to have to actually suffer. For you and I, that's obvious. You know, the whole Isaiah passage, the suffering servant passage, for us, that's easy. But they didn't see it. And now, all of a sudden, they're looking and they're going, oh, we missed it. Suddenly, they're just seeing all these prophecies after prophecy after prophecy pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. So that's one group of people. They're diving in and they're seeing that. There's another group of believers, and, and, and they're, you know, they're committed to this great commission that Jesus proclaimed. Go make disciples of all the nations. And so they're going out and they're sharing the good news gospel of Jesus and his message to the world. They're going out to those who are far from God. They're going to the Gentiles with the good news of Jesus Christ. They're making disciples. So you have those two group of people. Now, they went out to the, to the world. They went out to Gentiles. Now, with the exception of maybe one or two or three of you in here, Gentiles are basically all of us. Okay? So they went out to us. So now I want you to imagine with me, since you're a Gentile, or most of you are, imagine now that you're a first century Gentile. And as a first century Gentile, you worshipped. You worshipped the gods. But you have no love for the gods. The gods have no love for you. I mean, nobody back then worshipped Jupiter or Zeus or Athena or Artemis because they loved them, right? Nobody was singing songs of love to the gods. You see, the gods toyed with the people, and the people, they would try to manipulate the gods. That was kind of the pagan worship of the time. And sure, there was a strange group of people that called themselves Jews. And they didn't worship the gods, but instead, they were, and they didn't worship at the temples. Instead, they worshiped in their own little building they called the synagogue. And not only that, they didn't have all these statues and worship all these gods. They worshiped a single god. Now, you as a first century Gentile, that's really a, all you knew about these strange people called Jews. You didn't know anything about their 600 commandments. You didn't know about their, you know, their 10 commandments. So, imagine, Christianity is introduced to you. And it's something brand new. And it's this idea that this God of the Jews was doing something new in the world. And Gentiles didn't become Christians because somebody was saying, you know, here's what the Bible says. They didn't have a New Testament like you and I have. They didn't have a Christian Bible. There was the Old Testament, you know, the Testament of the Jews, but as Gentiles, you didn't really know anything about that, or you didn't know much about these strange Jewish people. But you were told there was a man who was actually God. He was actually the Son of God. And this man rose from the dead, 
and you could actually go to Israel, to Jerusalem, and you could actually go talk to the people who spent time with him and who saw this man who was the Son of God, who saw him die and then was raised from the dead. And you as a Gentile, you're like, I want to know more about that. So all these Gentiles in the early days of Christianity, you know what they had? They had the testimony of the eyewitnesses. They had the teachings of Jesus according to the eyewitnesses, and that's about all they had. And so that's why Paul, when later on he wrote his letter to the church of Corinth, and, and I want you to think about that, that's to a Basically, I mean, there's some Jewish people there, but that's basically to a bunch of Gentiles who didn't know anything about, you know, the Old Testament or the Jews. And here's what Paul said to them. Here's the most important thing you need to know. First, you don't have to turn there. First Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul said this to these Gentiles. He said, for what I received, I passed on to you. And what does the word say? As of what? First importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the Twelve. You see, that was the Gospel. That was the good news. Well, in college, they would, they would call it the DBR, the DBR, the DBR, the death, burial, burial, resurrection. That's what we heard constantly, the DBR. That's what you and I as Gentiles, that's what we had. That Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, but then he rose again. And then he went on and said, and he appeared to people. That's kind of the, those, those are the people, the eyewitness testimonies. And people like Paul and others were saying to people like you and me as Gentiles, listen, you don't have to be manipulated by the gods any longer. You don't have to be in that crazy relationship. And guess what? There's this one single God and He has invited you into a special relationship where you can actually call Him your Heavenly Father. Do you realize how revolutionary that was? That message to people who worshipped gods that manipulated them, that by the way weren't even real, right? They were just images. And when they heard, when you heard that message in that time, in that culture, in those cultures, I'm telling you, the message of Jesus was, was awesome. It was incredible. It was truly good news. And so Gentiles, people like you and me, they began flocking to the gospel of Jesus. And it wasn't because, you know, they loved the Old Testament. It wasn't because they were learning, you know, all about Genesis. and They didn't know all about all that. What they knew was Jesus a man who was God? He died and he rose again. And that you were being told to get baptized and now you're a Christian and now you're wanting to know, now what do I do next? See, that's what was happening in your world if you were a first century Gentile. That was your life. It was incredible. But back in Israel, back in Jerusalem, there is this group of Jewish religious leaders who had finally, you know, discovered Jesus and, and saw Jesus and, and Jesus became their Lord and Savior and they dug back into their Bible and they saw hints of Jesus everywhere in their Bible. And so these Jewish Christians, these Jewish Jesus followers, they decided something. They said, we need to make sure that we keep 
this new faith, this, you know, this next step of our faith, we need to keep Christianity attached to, hitched to, connected to their testament, their book, what you and I, of course, call the Old Testament. That, that we need to keep these together. They were what would later be called Judaizers. Now, here's their message. Jesus was Jewish. The Jewish nation birthed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And God is the God of the Jewish people. So all Gentiles, you must become Jewish as part of being a Christian. I mean, it just makes sense. Are you tracking with me so far? You tracking what's happening uh, in the world? So that's our backdrop. And with that in mind, I want everybody right now to turn to Acts chapter 15. So turn in your Bibles, Acts chapter 15. You can also uh, turn, go on your phone to the YouVersion Bible app. Go down to the bottom right-hand corner and hit the extras, I think it is, and you find you know, live events, and you go on to Life Points. You'll see us there, and it's live, and you click on it. You'll see all our notes there. Acts 15. Now I want you to keep in mind What's happening here in Acts chapter 15, call it, you know, it's about 50 A.D. or so. And as we get ready to read this passage in Acts 15, there is no New Testament yet, okay? What you and I have, we don't ha that doesn't exist yet. There's no New Testament. There's no writings of Paul yet. The Gentiles, they don't know much of anything, if anything, about the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments or anything about being Jewish. Okay, that's your context, my context, if you were living at this time. And so in Acts chapter 15, we have the first church business meeting. And, you know, business meetings have come a, become a lot of things in churches over the last, you know, 2,000 years. But in that first church business meeting, the question before them was, do we, have, do we Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to be Jesus followers? You see, for you and me as Gentiles... Our future hung in the balance of this first, you know, business meeting. Our future hung in the balance for what, of what they decided. So I'm going to read to you, and we're going to read together a little piece of history. And it's going to set up for us this series we're going to dive in called Not-O-Matic. So let's pick up together, Acts chapter 15, we'll start in verse 1. And it says this, Certain people came down from Judea. Now, you just need to know Jerusalem is in Judea. Judea. Jerusalem is up in the mountains and the hills. So anytime you left Jerusalem, you were going down, okay? Whether you went north, south, east, or west, you were always going down. Certain people came from Judea to Antioch. Now, Antioch is, you know, north, about 300 miles away, so it's a two- or three-week travel. Now, why are they going to go to Antioch? Because in Antioch, there's a whole bunch of Gentile believers, and notice what it says there. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching these believers. Here's what they were teaching to you and I. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be, and what's the word? You cannot be saved. Wow. Isn't that, wouldn't that grab your attention? If you've been in this church and you got saved, or you thought you got saved, you've been baptized, and now a whole bunch of these believers come and say, unless 
you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. You see, what they were saying is, hey, look, Jesus was a Jew, and we're God's people, and, and Jesus, you know, came out of who we are, and we found Jesus in the Old Testament, and we missed it at first, but it's clear to us now, and Jesus is Jewish, and we're God's people, and we birthed the Messiah, so it just makes sense that all of you Gentiles in here, that you'd become Jewish. And the sign of Jewishness was circumcision. In other words, every single man in here would have to undergo a surgery to be a Christian. Now, can you just imagine how that would have complicated things? I mean, I want you to think about this, guys. Can you imagine maybe you're a Gentile and, and you're at this retreat. You're a junior hire and you're at a retreat and, and, and you're there and you hear all about Jesus and, and you're excited. And then they say it and you walk forward and you get saved. And they say, now the next step is you got to get circumcised. And they're like, what is that? And then the person tells you, you're like, what? And, and they're like, yeah, if you want to be saved. And you get on the phone and you call mom and you're like, hey mom, I know I'm up at camp, you know, but the, the, you know, the camp nurse <laughs> said I have to, and the mom's like, what? Man, we're getting ready to go on a retreat next month. I hope every man's going to go. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, it really would have complicated things. Look at the next verse. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute. I bet it did. And debate with them. So they start going at it. Now here's the question. Why did Paul and Barnabas specifically not go along with this? They're Jewish themselves. Do you know a little bit about the story of Paul and Barnabas prior to this? Some of you, I think you do. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it tells us that Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Holy Spirit years prior to go and preach the good news of Jesus, the DBR, the death, burial, resurrection, go preach to Gentiles. And so they went off on a mission, and they shared Jesus in the region of Galatia which is, you know, modern-day Turkey, and they shared the gospel, and they planted churches, and they witnessed many, many, many Gentiles come to faith. And when they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, they didn't tell the converts you had to become Jewish first. So needless to say, Paul and Barnabas, they didn't agree with the Jewish Jesus followers trying to impose upon the Gentiles, you know, Judaism. Verse 2, Acts 15, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers. Now my hunch is, uh, to, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. My hunch is these other believers, if you just had to guess, this is again, it doesn't say in the Bible, but my guess is, you think there were Gentile believers or Jewish believers that went? Some say Jewish. You know, anybody else have a, anybody say Gentile? See, I think it was Gentiles. I think they took a whole bunch of their converts I think I t they took a whole bunch of some people in the church and say, hey, these were the he he heathen, pagan people. So, it, But again, it doesn't tell us, but that's just Chris's opinion. So uh, now, why did they go up there? Why did they go back to, you know, Israel, to Jerusalem? Well, that's where the original church was. 
That's where the final authority, so to speak, was. Because, well, I, I mean, that's where the apostles are. That's where the elders are. That's the, you know, the original believers, the ones who actually saw Jesus rise from the dead. So Paul, Barnabas, these other group of believers, they make the two, three-week trip to Jerusalem. So the apostles are there, and the elders of the church are there. Everybody's there, and the question is simple. Do you and I, do us Gentiles, have to become Jewish in order to become Jesus followers? You know, to complete our conversion, so to speak. Verse 4, the story continues. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. See, so Paul and Barnabas, they go in there and they tell the stories of how they've preached the gospel and how Gentiles were giving up their pagan gods and their pagan idol worship and how they were embracing Jesus as the Savior. And then they turn to the ones they brought. See, they're right here. And the council's like, oh man, praise God. This is incredible. And they, they must have been thrilled to see Jesus' great commission being lived out as they were making disciples, not just in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, but they were going to the ends of the earth. Verse 5. Notice what it says here. Then some of the believers, these are Christians, some of the believers who belong to the party of the who? Of the Pharisees. Hmm. Pause. That should spark something in our minds, right? Pharisees? Oh, I thought they were, I thought they were the, you know, the ones, the enemies of Jesus. I thought they hated Jesus. I thought they were the ones behind Jesus being crucified. But here we see in the Bible, some Pharisees are now saved. And they're even leaders in the church. The question is, how in the world did a Pharisee end up believing? Was it because of what Jesus taught? Well, certainly not originally. They hated what Jesus taught when he was alive. Was it because of Jesus' miracles? Not originally. Remember, they thought it was from Satan. Was it because he was crucified? No, they're the ones who wanted him crucified. You see, there's only one explanation as to how these Pharisees got saved. It was the resurrection. It's always the resurrection. And that's important for us today, and we'll get there. But it's always the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up and they said, the Gentiles, what's the word? The Gentiles, what? Must be circumcised. And what's the next word? And required to keep the law of Moses. They felt strongly that Jesus as Jewish Jesus must be embraced by the Gentiles, or must be embraced by these Gentiles, that they must follow the Jewish laws. They must be circumcised, which was the sign of following God's Jewish laws. Verse 6, the apostles and elders, they met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter, who you know was kind of the, the, the main leader of the, the church in general, even though we'll see in a second it was it was... Jesus' brother who was in charge of the Jerusalem church. But Peter gets up and he addressed them. Look at verse 7. He says this. He says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from whose lips? Whose lips? My lips. The message of the gospel and believe. 
Because five chapters earlier in Acts chapter 10, God had told Peter, I want you to go to Cornelius' house. He's a Gentile. I want you to go to Cornelius' house, and I want you to spend time with him, spend time with these Gentiles. And Peter's like, there's no way I am not going. There's no way, God, I'm not doing that. And then God said, not only do I want you to spend time with them, I want you to share the gospel with them, and I want you to eat with them. That's all back in Acts chapter 10. Peter's like, no way, I'm not doing it. I'm not going there. I'm not eating that stuff that they eat. I'm not doing it. God's like, no, you're going to do it. So Peter goes in this incredible story, and, and he's basically saying, Guys, you know, and I understand this is a sensitive topic with you know, talking to his Jewish brothers in Christ. He's like, but you guys know the story. I went there and I actually ate with and stayed with and shared the gospel with Gentiles that they might believe and be saved just as we have. Verse 10, jump down. He says, so why do you try to test God. Why do you try to test God? In other words, you would think that these Pharisees who have become Jesus followers, you would think that they've already been on the wrong side of God once. <laughs> you think they would have learned their lesson. Why do you try to test God? And I'll just pause for a moment and throw this out to you. Is it possible that you and I test God? His, test His love and grace and mercy? Is it possible that we are testing God every time we try to impose religion on people? Religious behaviors on people? Religious law on people? Why do you test God? Why do you, notice what the verse goes on to say, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Peter's like, listen, all you guys, I know we're all kosher, right? I get it. We were raised reading the Torah. We were raised to follow 600 plus laws and try to follow all of them. And I mean, you guys all know this yoke has been an incredible burden on our back. And do you really want to place that burden that we haven't been able to live up to ourselves? Do you really want to place that on the back of these new believers? If we can't live up to the Old Testament law, why should they? No, verse 11, Peter says. No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus, not the law. See, through it's the grace of our Lord Jesus, what, notice what he says, that we are saved just as they are. And then he sits down. It was awesome. Perfectly said. And then James gets up to speak. This is my favorite part. And by the way, James is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And I want you to think about this. James didn't follow Jesus at first. After all, Jesus was this crazy brother who had a Messiah complex. Right? I mean, you know, Jesus, you know, James, like, you're the Savior. Yeah, right. Pass the catch-up. So, I mean, you know, growing up with, you know, your brothers claiming to be, you know, the Messiah, it just doesn't go over well. But what changes everything? What is it? What changes everything? The resurrection. His brother rose from the dead. And so James became a follower of Jesus. 
And here's what he says. One of the most profound statements in all the Bible, in my opinion. Verse 19, he says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Man, that, I hope that's just kind of like, you know, almost this internal mantra that you live by. We should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. He's like, hey, if these people are taking the eyes off of these false, you know, pagan gods, and they're starting to focus on the one true living God, he's like, man, let's fan that flame. Why would any of us do anything to get in the way of them turning to God? Why would we impose something on them? Verse 20, instead, we should write to them telling them. And the them is us, again, Gentiles, so this is important. If you're a first century Gentile, this is the first letter written to you. They've been waiting in Antioch to find out, do I have to become this full-fledged Jew like all my Jewish brothers? This answer right here, this letter is going to explain how you as a Gentile Christian are to view you know, the law of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. This James is about to tell you and I. Verse 24, jump down. James says in this letter to you and I, to these first Gentile believers, he says, we have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and they've disturbed you. <laughs> I'll bet they did. Of course they did. We've been following Jesus, and now you guys have come tell, tell us we've got to obey these new rules that we didn't know anything about. He goes on, troubling your minds by what they said. See, just think about this. You're at this council in Jerusalem with these elders and these apostles and, and Paul and Barnabas and others, and you're there, and you're like, okay, what do we require of the Gentiles, these new believers? Do they become Jewish? Do they follow the 600 laws? Do they at least follow the Ten Commandments? I mean, good grief, it's the Ten Commandments. What do we put on them? Verse 28, Acts chapter 15. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Here's the requirements. You guys ready? This is for you and I. Verse 29. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Now, they mentioned these dietary laws because James knew that these new Jewish believers and these new Gentile believers, that they were going to be together in the church. And James knew and the group, those early believers knew that, that if the Gentile believers would not, were not going to be sensitive to the Jewish dietary laws, that that was going to create a whole lot of problems for fellowship. And they knew that, and they said, I want you to be sensitive to your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, and I don't want you to sleep with anybody but your spouse. Now, why that part? Why the sexual immorality? Well, in that culture, sexual immorality was rampant. In many respects, and it really was, even though today is bad, it was even worse then. And on top of that, you would have sex with a pagan temple priest or priestess as part of your worship. And so they looked at that, and, they, and that, was the, that was the essence of their culture. And so they didn't want sex and the worship of false gods linked together anymore. Why? 
<laughs> it's obvious. God tells us, and because they knew the Old Testament. Why? Because sex was and is to this day only for, the mar- for a marriage. That's it. What else is on the list? Let's get ready to read. It's a long list. Here's the rest of the letter. Acts 15, 29. You will do well to avoid these things, the things I just mentioned. Farewell. What? Whoa, 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 whoa. No 600 commands? No 10 commandments? None of that? Nah, just, just don't offend your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know, don't have sex with anybody except your spouse. That's it. What about the whole Old Testament thing? Well, the Old Testament, it's, it's amazing, and it's fascinating, and it's interesting, and it tells us about Jesus, and you might really enjoy the stories, and you can learn from them, but it's not your approach to God because you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 30, so the men were sent off. That's the letter, and they went down to Antioch, and, you know, they've been waiting now, you know, two, three weeks to get there, two, three weeks to get back. It's been over a month. Where they, where they gathered the church together and delivered the message. Can you imagine if we all showed up to church right now? And we've been waiting for a month, and you know the herald had come and said, hey, they're back, they're back. We're going to find out our answer. So you guys all came to church this night, and, and, and you're ready to listen. But you don't know what the answer's going to be. I mean, put yourself in this situation. Here we go. And Paul gets up, or Barnabas, or somebody gets up, Acts 15.31. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Woohoo! We dodged a bullet on this one. The ladies were like, ah, you guys got lucky. Listen, I'm telling you, we in this room, 2,000 years later, we were all at stake. And I want to tell you why this is such a big deal historically. It's because the Jesus movement, what you and I are a part of, came this close, that close, to stalling out. Because if that Jerusalem church had decided, yep, in order to be a Christian, you've got to become Jewish, then chances are Christianity would have died in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire. This was a huge, huge deal. In that council, in that business meeting, our faith, and this is what you need to understand, our faith was unhitched from Judaism. This is where it happened. We don't want you to offend your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want you to sleep only with your spouse. That's it. Now, i got to tell you, as a preacher, I read this and I go, that had to be rough on the first preachers. I mean, seriously, I mean, think about it for a second. I mean, this week we're going to preach about diet. Come back next week, we're going to teach about sex. Come back next week, we're going to teach about diet again. Come back next week, we're going to teach about sex. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this going, oh my goodness, how many messages on sex and diet can I teach? I mean, i got to come up with new material on the same topic over and over and over. Well, actually, now I think about it, that's fine, because the reality is, For most of us here today, your two biggest problems are diet and sex, right? So, I mean, (laughs) we we get that, so I guess it would be okay. So that's our backdrop. That's our context to set up this series we're calling Not-O-Matic. 
And if you just imagine with me, you're this first century believer. You don't have a Bible yet. You don't have a New Testament. The Old Testament's there, but you're a Gentile. Why would you read it? What do you have? You have the good news message of Jesus Christ, the DBR, the death, the burial, the resurrection. And you had what Jesus taught. You had what Jesus taught as shared with you by the the eyewitness testimonies of what Jesus taught. And so imagine, you have Jesus' teachings or Jesus' commands, and they required extraordinary trust in God, and the reality is they were unrealistic. What Jesus taught was not easy, and what he taught definitely wasn't going to be automatic for us. The reality is what Jesus taught actually didn't really make a whole lot of sense until after he was resurrected. And what we're going to be looking at are the knots of what Jesus taught. Here's one. Fear not. Uh, Do what? Don't be afraid? Yeah. Fear not. You see, I listen to that. You listen to that and we say that that not is anything but automatic for us. How about this one? Jesus said, doubt not. What? Quit doubting. Really? I mean, really? Uh, That not isn't automatic for me either. Jesus said this one, worry not. Just stop worrying. Just stop it. You're like, yeah, right. That's not automatic for me. And so the followers, before the resurrection, they're like, we can't just not fear. We can't just not doubt. We can't just not worry. Do you know how hard that is? It is not automatic. And I imagine the Savior thinking, yeah, 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 but just wait. Just wait until I die and I'm buried and I'm resurrected. Because once you see a resurrected Savior and you have the gift of the Holy Spirit inside of you, (laughs) what in the world do you have to worry about? Once you see a dead person rise as a living Savior, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, what in the world do you have to fear? And I want you to catch this. This is kind of as we wrap this up today. This is what fueled the first church. They were fearless. They did not doubt. They did not worry. They laid down their lives. And historically, it's a mystery. But theologically, there's no mystery at all. Because when you are absolutely convinced that your Savior has risen from the dead, it changes everything. So we're going to talk about what we are calling not-omatic. Being fearless, dealing with doubt, dealing with worry. And we're going to talk about a few others uh, that that are going to come as a surprise to you. And it's going to really lead us into this last part of the year where where God's taken us through this journey as we finish off this year. And when these not-commands from Jesus were combined with his command to love one another, combine those together. That is what changed the world. And that's why Christianity became a force to be reckoned with. And I'm going to tell you right now as we wrap it up, here's why it's so important for you and I. This is why this matters today. Because See, I'm not so sure if we, you and me, American Christians, if we were leading the charge back then, based on how we're living out these not commandments today, I'm not so sure, I'm not convinced that Christianity would have been a force to be reckoned with. I'm not so sure it would have even survived. 
And if you just heard what I said, let me say it another way, boom, I just laid down the gauntlet for you. There's your challenge to really look inside. So for the next few weeks, I just want us to retreat back in time. Before Paul started writing, before we had the New Testament, before you were, the Old Testament wasn't required to be following, and let's listen to how they listened to what Jesus said, and let's respond how these early believers responded to what Jesus said, because their response is what fueled that first church. Their response is what caused Christianity to be a force to be reckoned with, that to this day, People look at it and go, we don't understand. It's a complete mystery to us. Like I said, I'm talking to your head a lot today. So here's what I'm hoping. As you hear this backdrop, long introduction, not how you normally leave on a Sunday morning, but as we get ready to listen to these knots, let's get them to a place where they are automatic for us. Because when Jesus says, don't worry, don't fear, don't be afraid, all those things, we do. And a lot of us, we deal with it over and over and over and over and over again. And let's go back and let's get into this space and in this place. And let's be people who, in the modern world, in Elk Grove and across the world, we become a force to be reckoned with. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you right now, to resolve in your spirit that God, as I have the context now, I want to be ready to hear and embrace your not commands. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use us to be people who change the world. God, we want to be a people who are a force to be reckoned with. So God, as we, as we did something unique and different today, I do pray. I pray, God, that each person, each of us comes back and we're ready to hear how they heard and to respond how they responded and that we can change this world for you, Jesus. That's my hope and prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.